this passage that we're going to look at here today, I believe this is the core or the heart of this epistle. So, I, I, I hope that uh, we can really glean from it and that we together have our hearts and our minds focused on what the Spirit of God would have for us today. So, with that in mind, um, you know and I know that we live in a, in a time where there's a definite leaning towards crying foul. You see it in sports. That was out of bounds. That wasn't a strike. Now, all the complaints that we have, especially at the, 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 the poor umpire or referee. How many of you are umpire or referee? There's only one hand other than mine being held up here, I think. Why is it that you're not out there volunteering to be an umpire or referee? What's the deal? Gee, let me tell you why. Because I've been on the end of the coach yelling at the referee. <laughs> Shame on me. You know, it even is in the, the courtroom, the courtrooms across America. You know, just recently, for instance, the Casey Anthony case. Um... It reminds you of another big case, the O.J. Simpson case. And my, it's like, why is it that we magnify those cases, but we don't hear much about the cases that are, you know, in favor of the person, and, and it turned out all right. But in our minds, the thing that's magnified is a case like Casey Anthony case or O.J. Simpson case. And why is that? Because we want, we want justice. Yeah. So, you are being, figuratively speaking, put in the jury this morning. And it's your job, remember what the judge comes and tells the jury people? It's your job to, you know, deal with all the evidence. Here's the evidence. And uh, you know what goes on then in these kind of cases that I've mentioned, these examples, they bring out the least slight little what? Doubt. Because the jury has to go by the, the facts, ma'am, just the facts. Okay? And so, this is the case for the Christ. Now, some of you... You've already made your deliberation and you've, you are there. You have decided and you understand it's of God. And God brought about the gift of faith and the gift of His grace and you're saved and it's a done deal. But some of you here this morning, like many around the world, are still deliberating. The jury is still out on the case for the Christ. And John, like I've said already, gets at the heart of the uh, of his the purpose of his letter right here, verses six through twelve. And so you and I need to weigh the evidence and the arguments and come forth with the verdict. And we start here. I'm going to help us along the way too. So. You, you have your Bible. You can look at your Bible. But those that don't, there it is, all right? 
And so we're looking at 1 John chapter 5. And he starts with this first little phrase. Just look at it. This is the one who came. And we stop right there. And that's important because the word came, the verb, is in the aorist active. Okay? The aorist active. And that's pointing, that's pointing to a past historic reality. And that is now going to be supported by, number one in your outline, the primary evidence. He came. There it is. And that's really referring then to his incarnation. His incarnation. And so, number, point number one in your outline, if you're following along, is the primary evidence. And we're looking at verses 6 through 8. You can look on the screen if you like. This is just verse 6 where it says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Now, we've got the primary evidence broken down into three significant uh, witnesses, if you will. Um, two of them are inanimate, and one is personal. Okay? So we start, and this, this gets kind of um, complicated because of what um, many believe are different views. You know, there's, you look at commentators, and there's different views about what this means. What, is, what does he mean by the water and the blood? We kind of understand about the Spirit, but, you know, there's a lot of, Uh, different things pointing in different directions about the water and the blood. Here's a couple of them. Um, There's a view there that says that it's from Christ's crucifixion. When he was on the cross, what happened? The Roman soldier speared him in the side to make sure he was what? Dead and outflowed blood and water. Is that what he's referring to? Some believe that it, it really refers to the two church ordinances. Here's communion and what? Water baptism. Believer baptism. Okay? And some, some think it's that. Others believe that the water and the blood as testimonies, as evidences for the case of the Christ, is really referring to His water baptism and His crucifixion. Water at His baptism, blood at His crucifixion. That's where I believe it is. I believe it's that last one. And the reason is, what's the purpose of this letter, folks? You've got to remember, what's the purpose of the book that we're studying? What is it? You know, if we're studying in Sunday school, Kevin's leading a study in Acts, or in, in the Fellowship Hall, Michael's leading a study in Nehemiah. What's the purpose of the book? And here we ask that question. John was trying to fight off two sets of false teaching. Remember? And so, if this is the core, if this is the heart of this epistle, he's going to go after those false teaching. And that's what he does. That's exactly what he does in bringing up these witnesses. You know, think about a court case. They, they want to come, come with, the, hey, the top guns of, of the, you know, for the, bringing forth the evidence against the case or for the case. And that's what John's doing here. Okay? John is trying to expose the teaching that claimed that 
Jesus was just a mere man, just like everyone else. But at his baptism, he became the Christ. And you and here's the argument. Well, see what happened there? At his baptism, what happened? The Spirit descended on him like a dove. He became the Christ. If you go after that, that's wrong. That's error. That's false teaching. Because God said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He wouldn't have said that if he was just a mere man. He was already that. He's been the Christ from eternity. He's been the Son of God since eternity. He didn't become the Christ at the baptism. Okay? So, and then at his baptism, and you can mark it down, it's Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 through 17. So Christ was not, at that that point, Christ was not demonstrating that he needed to be baptized like everyone else. Everyone else was being baptized for what? To show that they were repenting of their sins. Christ didn't need to do that. Christ was baptized to fulfill all righteousness. Right? Okay? And in doing so, he was, in essence, being a, he's standing as a representative of mankind in those baptism waters in the Jordan River. And thus he was taking on this issue of the, the burden and the guilt of sin for all. He was doing that in a representative way. Okay? So, that's, that's regarding the water. There's another uh, t- false teaching that was there at that time, that the belief that Jesus did not have a real human body. That was another issue they're dealing with in these times. And he only appeared to be a real man. So, with those two false teachings going on, John presents the evidence, the water and the blood. The water regarding his being the son of man, taking on the sins of the world. But notice that he he says, he he goes about saying it in verse 6, he says, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And here's one way that um, commentators will put it is that regarding the water, we can say, well, here's the representation of, here's a sinless man and he's perfect. Okay? But our faith needs more, listen, our faith needs more than just a sinless man. Our faith needs a sacrifice, a blood sacrifice. And the two work together. Okay? So, Letter B, I'm sorry, letter A is the water. Letter B is the blood. And you can mark down Hebrews chapter 10, 11 and 12 as a reference, along with Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. Those refer to refer us to the fact that this was a, a blood atonement, a blood sacrifice. It had to have been. Now, many, I've got relatives that have done this, and maybe you do too. Many have deleted the blood. They just want the water representation. They want to know he was a good example, a good teacher, and someone to emulate. But many have decided in their own way, or from uh, teachers that would want it this way, they would push the delete button on the blood. Okay? We got some problems there. We have... um, 
you know, back when I was in college, I remember hearing of stories of certain choirs going to, to different churches in the Southern California area, and they were told, uh, don't sing that particular song. That's referring to the blood. We don't want to offend our people. But this is a church? What gives? They just wanted to talk about Jesus being a good example, a good teacher. And how we need to love each other, probably. <laughs> All that kind of fun stuff, right? Well, so the, it, it, it goes on here in his passage where he says, and in verse 7, and it is the Spirit who bears witness because the Spirit is the truth. Now, we've got a, another little issue that I, I need to walk you through here. Maybe some of you understand it. This takes some time. <laughs> it's a textual problem. Now, how many of you have King James Bibles? You have a King James Bible. And in that, it says, in the King James Version, at verse 7, he says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one, and they are three that bear witness in the earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. And all that, if you have a New American Standard, or an NIV, New International Version, or an English Standard Version, you're going, where'd that come from? I'm missing out something here. Now, What's the problem? Why, there, why is there such a, um, a difference here? Now, most commentators, if you go studying it and look at what commentators say, most are saying this was an added phrase in the King James Version. Got it? Okay. And these words are not found in most of the earlier manuscripts. The earlier Greek manuscripts are critical because those are the what? Those are the older ones. That's very important. Okay? The newer ones, you would want to be a bit more um, detailed in looking them through if you were one of those language guys. <laughs> but it's the older ones that seem to have more of the reliability and the authenticity to them. So this phrase seems to be that it was added because it was not found in earlier Greek manuscripts. The Wycliffe Bible Commentary says, The verse edition is spurious. Not a single manuscript contains Trinitarian edition before the 14th century, and the verse is never quoted in the controversies. This is an important historical fact. None of these, none of these, uh, this verse was not quoted in any of the controversies over the Trinity in the early church days. That's critical because there's all sorts of squabbling going on over the Trinity. And one of the issues is, and cults might say this to you, well, the, the word Trinity is not in the, it's not in the Bible. And so there's an argument. And, and if you're not studied up or aware, you get, what? Uh, I thought, I mean, our church, our pastor says about the Trinity, here it is. The Trinity, if you haven't heard, is the belief that God is one, yet three. Three in one. The Lord our God is one. Let us make man in our image. How do you figure that one out? 
Okay? And this is an infinite truth that finite minds are trying to wrestle with. Got it? <laughs> and you can't get it, and I can't get it. It's, it, it. It is what it is. There it is. God is one. And then God says, let us make man in our image. And God says, this is my beloved son. There's no one else. He's my son. He's God. And the Spirit, He's God. The Holy Spirit, He's God. Three in one. Okay? So, the King James, it's, it said, uh, Ray Steadman mentions this in his commentary. Ray Steadman mentioned, the King James translators did not have access to a number of these manuscripts that are available today and therefore did not recognize this. That's what he says about the issue of verse 7. Okay? So, it's as if a, a well-meaning scribe or translator thought it was wise to throw this in the column as he was copying off the words, copying word for word. That's what he was doing. Well, what the King James Version says there in verse 7, is that wrong? No. It's not wrong. It's just not in the earlier manuscripts. Okay? So, that's the little explanation I, I feel is necessary uh, to give you there on this issue. Okay, so, verse 6, it's the, the three evidences. Blood, or water, blood, and the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Okay? There are three that testify. And then now, see what he does in verse 8? He puts the Spirit first. The Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three are in agreement. Okay? Now, we move on to point number two. We've had the primary evidence. And now it goes to the pivotal argument. And this is... Um, it didn't dawn on me until I started getting into the study more that this is really the pivotal argument. He's given the evidence, but now he's going to say, now think, of it, think this over. Look at verse 9. It says, if we receive the testimony of men, stop right there, that first phrase can be translated also as since, since we receive the testimony of men. What's that getting at? Well, let me ask you. Um, do you trust your doctor? Do you trust your dentist? Do you trust your pharmacist? Well, if you don't, you need to go find somebody else. <laughs> you do. That's the point. You trust your doctor and what he tells you. You trust your dentist. You receive the testimony of men. Now, if you receive, since we receive the testimony of men, guess what the next statement is? Why in the world don't you receive the testimony of God? Okay? God's testimony is what? Greater. God's testimony is reliable. God's testimony is dependable. Okay? And the argument that John brings out then is between letter A, man's character, and letter B, God's character. You know, we do trust others' words. Many of us have been uh, burned, as we say, because we believed what someone told us. 
and that really irks us. That really gets under our skin and we get upset about that because I trusted you and you didn't, you know, you didn't give me the truth. Now, the idea here in this pivotal argument is pitting man's character and God's character. And it, it drives us then to study God's character. A lot of times we're, we're not pulling that information to mind and to application about God's character. We need to do that. We're quick to, you know, bring out problems with man and complaints and murmurings there. But when it comes to God's character, are we quick to bring God's character to mind? God cannot lie. It's not in Him. He cannot lie. You can trust Him. Okay? And the record of the Bible is from eyewitnesses. Don't you know that? The Bible. The books of the Bible, are, they're, they're written by guys that were obviously inspired by the Holy Spirit, but they, they're, here's eyewitnesses. Peter said, I'm an eyewitness of His majesty. And we have a sure, more prophetic word in the Bible. He's pointing us to the Bible. You can trust God and what He says and the record He's given, the testimony. But then, look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony himself. There's reception in that. You've received the testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him who's him. God. You've claimed that God is a liar when you don't believe his record, when you don't believe his testimony. You are claiming God to be a liar in the courtroom of civilization, in the courtroom of history. All right? And what's happened now is his integrity is now pitted against your argument. His integrity is pitted against your science professor's logic. Kids that are going off to college, you got science professors that are waiting there and they want to undermine your faith. And they want to show how ridiculous Christianity is with their arguments, their scientific proofs. Or it might be some other professor, history professor, political science professor. They're out there and they want to disprove Christianity. And those of us that are not going off to college, you get the, if you watch National Geographic or Discovery, you get those philosophers undermining your faith there. Every time someone says it's millions of years long, this Earth's history. Well, there's, the, there's one of the core issues of their argument. They're saying that we've evolved. All sorts of things that challenge the integrity of God. Are you and I accepting those things? Is that what we accept? It's just another man. Yeah, sure, he's got a degree on his wall. PhD, whatever. We respect that. But we're not going to compare that with God. Got it? (laughs) So, the pivotal argument boils down to this, my friend. 
you take a man's word, are you taking God's word? And it gets down to very simple terms. You believe it? You believe his word? Then live it that way. Demonstrate it that way. Just remember, if God says it, I believe it, and that settles it for me, that little line is not just a little kid's song. There's truth with that. Point number three. He's given us the primary evidence. Then he's given us this pivotal argument. And now he moves to the paramount conclusion. It's paramount because there's nothing greater. There's nothing higher than the conclusion of the matter. And there's nothing greater that you and I, as people, have to deal with. There's nothing greater than this conclusion. And so we look at verse 11 and 12. Why don't we read it together? Here we go. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so, the paramount conclusion comes to, letter A, the ultimate testimony. There is no greater testimony than what God has given. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. Nothing, there is absolutely nothing that surpasses this. There's nothing that surpasses the the record of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Jesus Christ came. That phrase right there says, a world of riches for us, that He came. He gave up what He gave up to come as a man. And He was the spotless, the stainless Lamb of God that came to be sacrificed at Calvary. He wasn't just a good guy. He was God in the flesh, and He gave Himself for our sins, for our redemption. Okay? And then His life, Jesus' ministry of seeking the lost, of giving up His life a ransom for many, it began where? At His baptism. That's the inauguration of his ministry, right there. That's it. He started the, the inauguration of his ministry was at his water baptism. From there, he was led out to the, the wilderness. And thus it started. And it culminated here at the cross as our perfect blood sacrifice. And what is he promising? Success? What's he promising? Eternal life. This life is in his son. That's the equation. You have eternal life is because you have the son. There's an intimate relationship there. Jesus Christ, eternal life. That's what the scriptures are pointing at. You, it's not a matter of saying, oh, I'm gonna, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven and then I'll have eternal life. No, the idea is that it started now because of Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. Then letter B, 
It's not just the ultimate testimony. But now, letter B is referring to verse 12. It's the unavoidable response. The unavoidable response. There are no other options from which to choose. None. Either you have the Son and you have life, or you do not have the Son of God, and therefore you do not have life. It comes down to, what's your response, jury? (laughs) You know, a lot of times we just look at it, people people look at it and just kind of of say, well, you know, that's okay for you. I'm glad that you're happy. And those kinds of arguments come up. But we can't, you know, what they're doing is they're just flying right over this concrete evidence. And this, this persuasive argument what are you going to pit God and man against, you know, going to pit God, uh, man's uh, reasoning against God's character? And some of you think, well, you know, I, I don't do that. Stop and evaluate that. Are you doing that in your behavior? Are you doing that in your thought life? Are you doing that in your conversation? Because that, my friend, it does show up. It does show up in you know, this, this leaning towards man's uh, reasonings and man's logic. And thus we aren't walking in faith. When we don't walk in faith, are we then guilty of making, not, making God out to be a liar? Do you see that, the, how it comes back? And it's a challenge for you, my friend, that says, you're, I'm a Christian, that, to say, let's keep walking in faith in Christ. It's overwhelming evidence. And for you, Christian, it's overwhelming joy. It's overwhelming joy when you let it really sink in and affect your heart and your life. And it's not like these other court cases that I brought up at the beginning where you can just kind of file, oh, that's more facts. This court case is totally different because it beckons you, it beckons you to make a response. And here's... Here's where my life is now headed. You know, the O.J. Simpson case of years gone by, that, that hasn't changed your life. It, it may be that it, it caused you to think, well, yeah, that sure seemed like it didn't turn out right. I just have it in my mind, that one picture where he grabs the glove and puts the glove on, and I, I can't help but think, you know, he was just stretching out his hand. <laughs> stretching out the big hands that he has and say, well, yeah, I could do that. I could stretch out my hand on a glove that normally when I put on a glove, you, you, you kind of go like that and put it on. <laughs> Enough of that. I'm sorry. That, that's side stuff. What changes our life is what Christ came and accomplished. Okay. So, we wrap it up with this little last line on your outline. For the record, we've wrapped up our deliberations. For the record, where do you stand? Where do you stand? What's it going to be? And how will you live your life because of this evidence and because of God's testimony? 
does it really make a difference in you? The evidence is clear. The argument is convincing. The conclusion is, it's either eternal life or eternal separation from God. Eternal life is promised. It is a gift. He gave us eternal life. It says that over and over again. It's a gift. It cannot be earned. And it's in a person. It's not just a matter of eternal time. Do you understand that? It's about a person. He is eternal life. That is amazing. No one could claim that and be left saying they're, they're a lunatic. You know, I mean, they are. They're, they're, you know, people look at him and say, that, that guy's a lunatic. So it's a gift. It can't be earned. It's a person, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is received by faith through Christ and in Christ. And it is a certainty. And that, my friend, will come next week. We'll keep on. God bless you as you continue letting him speak to your heart and rule your life. Let's stand for a closing word of prayer. We might have been in the habit of crying foul ever since we were a little child. But with God and with Jesus Christ and what He's accomplished, there's no crying foul. It is a determined thing. God accomplished it. God is good. God is faithful. Heavenly Father, we bow before You, giving You thanks for this time. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would help bring it to our hearts to bear fruit, not to just be another item, another fact of life, another bit of knowledge. Lord, we need Jesus. Whatever we're facing, Lord, we need Jesus to help us each and every day. We need to yield ourselves. We need to humble ourselves. Forgive us for our pride. Continue to show us the glories of our Savior. We praise you, Lord. In Christ's name. And everyone said...